Welcome to the Seller Scale Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Amazon FBA businesses, the people, and the stories behind them. Brought to you by Seller Scale, the number one financial analytics dashboard for Amazon sellers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Seller Scale Show or podcast, depending on where you're consuming this content. Uh, today, we have a very interesting guest. Her name is Orion, and she is an inventory balancing expert. And inventory balancing and inventory management is probably one of the most important aspects of having an e-commerce business, and probably the less sexiest one because a lot of people in this space talk about PPC and listings and finding the best product, but the real problem of the business is not as much marketing or finding new products, but it's cash flow and inventory. It's managing the business that you already have and the products that you already have. And to me, that's where a lot of uh, most e-commerce businesses suffer. I know that Orion has some very interesting and unconventional thoughts on this aspect of the business. And today we're going to talk a lot about inventory, the status quo in inventory management, and most common mistakes that sellers make when dealing with inventory. And uh, with that being said, I'm going to pass it over to Orion. I'm very excited to talk to you today. Hi. Hi, it's Sergey. I'm very excited as well. Uh, this is a great chance and thank you for having me. Um, so let me just start by giving a very short background about myself. I have two advanced degrees. I have a degree, a bachelor's of engineering and an MBA. And after my MBA, I started going deeper and deeper into the world of logic management. And that led me somehow into inventory management. Uh, specifically because I'm a shopaholic and I never find what I want. And when I realized that inventory management is at the heart of my um, buyer experience, my experience as a consumer, I go to the shops, I go to the mall because I want to have fun. And when I go into the shop and they go, nah, we sold out of that. I don't have fun. And that's why this idea that brought, brought me into inventory balancing was so strong with me, was so enticing to me that we can do something where you, your girlfriend, your mother, your daughter, your sister, your friend, your brother go into the shop and yeah, sure. Yep. 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 I love that. I love that. Uh, but right now, today, like when people ask you what you do for a living, how do you typically respond? What's your business? So my business is very, very niched down and focused today. And what I do is I help Amazon sellers reduce excess inventory while still bringing in about 60% of the profits they expected to bring from that inventory. And uh, when you're talking to the average Amazon seller or let's say a beginning Amazon seller who doesn't even know what excess inventory is and what inventory imbalancing is, how do you explain to him in simple terms like why is inventory management important? Well, I have several um, different pictures to paint with this. Um, Basically, what I want to do with inventory is have a very balanced or uniform flow Think about this, if you ever went on a race, I ran a race once in Washington where the army sent troops and they were running information and I was running next to them alone. 
if one of the guys in the troop running in this formation, like the Marines, like we see in the movies singing their songs and stuff, if one of them fell back half a meter, a foot, everybody knows. If I'm having trouble breathing and I'm about to have a heart attack, but I'm still kind of plodding along in this race, nobody knows until I'm on that floor in medical emergency. And it's the same thing for inventory, actually. If you have some kind of tool that gives you balance and formation and visual visualization, if one of your SKUs is not performing as expected, your supplier messed something up, you forgot to order something, it immediately pops up. If you manage your SKUs separately on different Excel sheets or in your head, or um, even if they are on the same spreadsheet, but they don't have this common denominator, this set, uh, singular pace for everything, you don't know. You have no way of knowing you're in trouble until it's heart attack. Yeah, I agree with you. Like To me, that's one of the things that Amazon sellers until the very last moment, until it's crucial and until you just can't not do something, right? Um, and I mean, you have a lot of experience, obviously, and you're working with very different sellers. I'm curious to know whether, is there the same approach for inventory management for different types of sellers, or does it depend on the size of the business, numbers of products, the number of products that you have, or maybe the revenue? Um. There's a saying in Hebrew that says, how much does a suit for an orphan costs? All the suits in the world have trousers, have blazers, they have sleeves, and each one is different because our bodies are different, our pocket size is different, the amount of money we're willing to spend is different, it's summer, it's winter. So the logic is the same logic if you have one SKU or that, that you are hand making from the bedroom, or if you are a multinational conglomerate, inventory yeah. has to flow based on a certain logic. But given that logic, each business is different. Mm -hmm. And the way we do it is we adjust your solution to your needs. It's still the, exactly the same logic, but um, I have one customer who works with me who has a small number of SKUs all of them in exactly the same category. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, they are all the same products in different designs. He doesn't have sizes, he just has colors. Um, and that requires a certain build. And another customer that used to work with me has four categories, uh, sizes, colors in each one. Uh, and different suppliers for each one, and some of them goes through several suppliers. We actually have to manage all of this process for him. Totally different results, and he was actually the smaller clients. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what size you are. It's the, the way you need to manage your supply flow. So there's no one-size-fits-all uh, process. Uh, there's no there's one approach. One size there is only one size fits all, fits all logic, but that's, <laughs> that should be correct in uh, everything in life. 
I love that. I love that. Um, from the sellers you work with, um, is there like a status quo around inventory management? Like, um, how do sellers typically manage their inventory and when, when they come to you? Well, from what I've seen and I've worked in e-commerce, in factories, in retail. So I've done an even, even bigger uh, point. I have an even, even wider point of view. Um, everybody is very, very afraid of inventory. Right. Um, they really don't want to change anything. And my... Conception for that is that the current solutions that we were taught in university, that we were given from our predecessors, they somehow work. So we don't want to touch them because we're not sure how they work. It's like this old, old machinery that you might have or an old car. You don't have any repair parts. You don't have, you don't have the, the screwdrivers that work with it anymore because they're all gone. It works. Don't touch it. <laughs> and that's the, the, the approach. We, the, not the approach. That's the uh, emotion that I'm getting a lot of time from people, especially if, let's say, I talk with the CEO of the company and he says, okay, here's the planner. Start working. <sighs> not easy. That's one of the things I really like about e-commerce is that I'm usually talking with the people, with the same person when the decision-making is made and the inventory is handled. Right, right. Even, if you, have people, even if you have people on the team at the small team and, right, and right, the CEO right. or the manager or the owner is always there um, to, to push if I need the, that support. Right. Interesting. Um, and among those sellers, those small companies that you work with, uh, the Amazon sellers, um, what are the m big things, like common mistakes that you see like happening over and over again and that you're already tired of uh, correcting all the time? Well, uh, I, this is something that I've just recently come to realize and that um, business has evolution like our bodies, our society, everything goes through evolution. And if you look at the business uh, mark, at the business market evolution, a lot of things have moved tremendously from the past until today. But when I read recently uh, an ex excerpt from uh, Shakespeare's *The Merchant of uh, Seville*, of Venice, uh, it's the same guy who goes to Seville later. <laughs> Uh, the, the Merchant of Venice, I can't even realize that he did his inventory very much the same way we do it today. It was more pronounced because you had this ship that took a year to go and come back, but you basically lived from shipments to shipments. And we do that mm -hmm. today just very much the same way. And looking at the evolution of the market, think back far, 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 far back into the future. The market developed in an economy of um, missing resources. You sold in a small market uh, who had a very limited amount of buyers and you had a very limited amount of merchandise to sell because uh, 
you can only sell the prop that grew and you could only sell the fabric that came in the ship or with the merchants who came across the desert. You had a very limited supply and you had limited demand. That led to certain ways of doing business, of managing inventory, of pricing it. The market has changed. We are in a limitless market. 100% from supply side, if I don't find what I want in the store next to me, I immediately go online and buy it from the store in another city, in another country, and pretty soon out of space probably. There is limitless supply now. And there's also very close to limitless demand because if I have excess stock, I can go and sell it in China. I can so go and sell it in India. Not everything sells very well. Prices may vary, but I can find demand for my supply far away from where I used to find it. So the market has totally changed, but our models are still the same. They're still capped. And what and is that model? The model says that you have to buy at the cheapest unit price that you can. And that means you have to buy far and you have to buy a lot of time ahead, which means you have to forecast a lot of time into the future. And for a lot of products, that means that you have only one supply option. You get it, you sell it, you move on. Because the season ended, you can't get another shipment from China uh, for winter. It's just going to come in by the time it hits spring. It right. means that we force our customers, as sellers, we force our customers to comply with us instead of doing the other thing around. Right. Uh, I happened to be in Atlanta last summer. I was melting hot and the shop windows had ski equipment with these big, big, big parka coats. And I was like, oh, how are the mannequins not dying? But the thing that struck me as a, an inventory expert is you're telling me what to feel, what to want, what to, I don't want that anymore. I'm hot. I want to try something light that is even lighter and more refreshing than what I actually brought with me in the suitcase. I don't want a parka. I want a nice little t-shirt and miniskirt or something. Right, right. Immediately, I start thinking about Zara and uh, their model of fast inventory, like turnover. I think they have uh, a new collection every like every few weeks, every two or three weeks. Like uh, okay. the Zara group. Yeah, Zara has something something that's very close to or at what's called a fast fashion. Right. I'm not a big fan of fast fashion. Um, I'm not a big fan of the way sellers translate the idea of fast fashion into their reality. For okay. example, I do not understand why we need fashion in baby clothes. Right. <laughs> Okay, I understand winter has ended and now we need different kind of fabrics because it's spring and summer and we don't want to kill the babies. But next year's winter babies don't care what was on the clothes this year. 
And you know something? Their mothers don't either because most of them weren't mothers this year. So why don't we just put it back on the shelf? Why do we discount it saying it's old? Only we know it's old. And a lot of retailers do that because they're stuck with the old models. Yes, when we went to Macy's, it actually somehow made sense because I come back to Macy's year after year because Macy's offers a lot of departments. So I might know that what they're selling at Babies this year was Babies last year. But if you're selling just Babies clothes, your customers are turning. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing I have to say about fashion is that I've been a woman all my life, ever since I hit 20, which was quite a while ago. And I have a lot of girlfriends, and I know a lot of girls and women, and we tend to wear things we bought last year. That means that we're not that fashion crazy. Yes, there are some fashionistas in life, and there are some, I had some crazy friends who would wear stuff and throw it away because it's used. Not a lot of us. I have items in my closet for five, 10 years now. I'm on the other side of the scale there. But if something was a good seller this year, there's a good potential it's going to be a good seller next year. Why throw it away? Right, right, right. Uh, but going back to um, Amazon selling and uh, the models, like uh, the mistakes of the, mis- the mistake of thinking in the old model of uh, the scarcity mindset. Uh, what's your new approach? Like, how do e-commerce business executives and Amazon sellers should approach this new model of abundance of uh, having unlimited supply and limited demand? Okay, so the first thing you want to do is you want to make your decisions smaller and faster. And that that means you have to change the way your supply chain is working to support smaller and faster decisions. You, of course, cannot use the old supply chain model and say, okay, now I want to do smaller and faster decisions. So I'll order two weeks of stuff from China. And then what? You have to start creating a new supply chain logic and infrastructure. And you can still work with China. Right. But you have to start looking at the way you're doing business and say, okay, how do I make my decisions smaller so I can make them faster? Right now I have to order three months of inventory. So my decision is three months big. I want to make decisions that are three three weeks big. How do I do that? So um, we do that by several different mechanisms. And again, it's very, very case specific. The logic is general. And then you go and say, okay, I have this list of options. We can reduce supply lead time by talking to our supplier and figuring out what would be a win for them in order for them to demand smaller batch sizes from us, in order for them to give us shorter lead times. Uh, And I have to tell you, it's not always money. Mm -hmm. We've done this with, I've had the chance to to talk directly or through my customers with suppliers in the U.S., in South America, in China. We actually did come to one of the suppliers and ask them, how much more would it cost us to reduce lead time? 
nothing. He said wow. no, and then he figured out how he can do it, and volumes went up, and he said, okay, now I can commit a line to you, and this will shorten your lead times, and he didn't charge us a penny for that. Interesting, interesting. But but still, I mean, like, I'm an Amazon seller, right? And, like, I have my own way of doing things, for example. And um, I under, you're, I'm hearing this interview, and you're saying that, okay, I should shorten my lead time, I should order in smaller batches, and immediately my mind starts thinking, okay, then my costs go up, right? Because yeah. I have to order more, uh, less quantity and the supplier is going to charge me more. Yeah. Doesn't have to. You don't have to anything. I said there is a list of things. What we want to do is shorten your decision time and the decision size. How can we do it? We can add buffers. We can shorter lead times. Um, you don't have to order less if you want to order less each time you order. You can do a big annual or quarterly order. Okay. And and then set terms with your supplier where break it up. They, yep. where they break it up. You are committed to buy a full quantity at a certain time frame. Okay. But they don't even have to manufacture it until you okay. tell them that you're going to need it. There's a lot of space there that we're not using. Now, these big, big orders that suppliers love so much are suffocating them just as much as they're suffocating us. Actually, right. when you do when you do the, the financial math and roll it backwards, they gain the most from moving to the new logic. <laughs> because yes, it gives them a sense of security and um, financial stability. They take this big order from you. So they're committed, but now they can't take any opportunity that comes their way. And they have you committed to a very big spend. Now, that big spend might be too much for you to swallow. And if you okay. go under, they don't get paid. So they actually took a big risk on you. Whereas if they allow you to make smaller decisions, faster decisions, they reduce their risk. I like that. I like that. So it's a win-win situation in both ways. Oh, totally. It, it's a win-win throughout the supply chain, all the way to the end customer. Now, you're going to tell me, but the end customer is going to get higher prices. Yes, they are. They're going to pay higher prime premium prices. You know why? Because they get what they want. Oh, exactly. So uh, they basically pay for curation, for recommendation. Uh, they pay for getting what they want. I like yeah, that. Forgetting what they want. I, I call it um, the uh, purple unicorn tears. If a doctor told you the only thing that will save your life is purple unicorn tears, how much would you pay for them? A lot. Anything I have as got. Much, as much as you have to. Absolutely. Each... each Supplier, each seller has these items. No, they're not going to save anybody anybody's life, but they are what people really want. And they're willing to pay for them happily. I, I, I call myself a very informed and well-educated consumer. I don't buy expensive T-shirts just because they have a cool print on them. Unless I'm at Disneyland, <laughs> where I pay 20 Euros. I was in France with my son in Disneyland, and I paid 25 euros 
her t-shirts. Do you know why? At the time yeah, of purchase, I already knew I'm paying five for the t-shirts and 20 because I'm having a good experience and I'm happy and I want to take that home with me. And a t-shirt of Yoda saying something stupid will make that happen for me. Yeah, but there's a context again, right? Because you're in Disneyland and you want to continue yes. this experience. Yes, but if I am in your website and I'm having this good experience, I'm not going to think about cost. I'm going to be excited about this and I'm going to buy it. What are the ways for Amazon sellers to uh, make that happen, to make sure that their customers always get what they really want. Uh, because um, we were talking earlier, and uh, I think you said a phrase that if you sell to everybody, you're basically selling to nobody. Uh, so if you're do, selling to everybody, nobody will buy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So do you so go you need- said if you're selling to everybody, you're selling to nobody. But I'm saying if, if you're selling to everybody, if you go on those... Uh, systems that tell you which S item is now most popular and most profitable. And then you end up having two items for uh, the tableware and two items for the kitchen and three items for the nursery. And there is no rhyme or reason for that, those items to come together. Um, you can't do any kind of shop level marketing. You can't target anybody at the shop level. You're always working at the SKU level, at the product level, and you're actually running five, ten separate businesses at a time instead of having one business where you can optimize the entire business. And that right. influences you in, in more than one way, actually, because your attention is now dispersed between all these items because each one of them behaves differently, but also the, the power of statistics, which inventory management is all based on that. If you right. don't have the ability to do any kind of statistical inference, to use the rule of large numbers in order to make better decisions, knowing that errors will even themselves out over time, then everything in the, the system becomes more and more noisy, more and more cumbersome, more and more hard to manage. And so as a manager, you are becoming more and more overloaded. It's actually, okay, this, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this out loud right now. It might be better to figure out where you want your products to be, what niche, sub-niche even, and focus there, even if they're not the most profitable on um, Helium, I think it's called. It's not my, um, my scope. I don't, I don't tell you what products to choose ever. But Helium, they, I, I've seen some stuff about it. I understand you go there to figure out where to find profitable products. Right. You might be more profitable by choosing less profitable products that you can manage as a whole mm -hmm. rather than having this um, department store of your own within Amazon or even your Shopify site because the amount of effort you have to make to, to put in in order to bring people into your department store is significantly larger than the oh. amount of effort you have to do to bring in people to your Focused store. If I'm selling earrings, 
and I managed to catch your, your girlfriend's eyes because of a picture with these earrings that bring her into my store in Amazon. She goes to the store level because actually she doesn't like blue. Okay. And she sees I have the greens, I have the reds, but we're already communicating. If she goes there and I have something to clean your teeth and something for babies, there's no communication. Right, right. There's no connection, basically, because uh, you're not giving her what she wants. You're giving her everything you can. And that, again, back to your analogy that in the old strategy, in the old world, uh, suppliers and uh, sellers were trying to make customers buy what they had, not the, what the customer wanted, right? And uh, speaking of statistics and um, metrics, let's talk technical. Um, what metrics should the seller focus on tracking when we're talking about inventory management, inventory balancing? Like what's the single most important metric that we should focus on in this new world of abundance? That's a hard question. Um, thinking of the way Amazon Seller Central is set up, it's not there. Right. <laughs> um, so the metric I use uh, when I work with customer with, with my customers is days of sales and inventory. So it's mm -hmm. not how many units you have, it's how many days they can support your sales. Uh, a fast runner can have 100 units in SBA warehouses and a slow runner can have 10 units and they will have exactly the same amount of days of sales because this one sells 10 a day and this one sells one a day. Okay. So I'm looking at the days of sales I have in inventory and I want them to balance out, to be very, very nice and flat on the graph. Because think about it, there is no logical reason why I would want to have 700 days of sales of one item and 50 days of sales of another item. Absolutely. Yeah. I have... I have some kind of logic to say, that says I need this amount of days supported. I don't care right now what this amount of days is and why I came there. There's the rule of the thumb. You need 60 days. Amazon wants you to have 90 days. Or I just heard somebody say Amazon in Europe will uh, reduce your fees for inventory storage if you have between four and eight weeks because oh. their analysis says that's just the sweet spot where they can distribute it throughout the pan-European system and have enough to support Prime everywhere. Mm -hmm. Is this the right number for you? I don't know. But say you decide you want to have four weeks of inventory to get five weeks of inventory to ensure Amazon gives you this discount. That's your target. That what, that's where you want all your inventory, all your SKUs to balance. There's no reason to have a higher amount for one SKU and a lower amount for another SKU. Just no reason at all. Okay, so people Unless, can use it as, as a benchmark, right? Say that again? Uh, people can use it as a guideline, basically as a benchmark, this Amazon rule. Yes, it fits some... Most people do, do inventory today using rules of the thumbs and all kinds of benchmarks, which say, okay, you need two months. Why? Depends on how you manage your supply chain. I have customers that hold two weeks of inventory in Amazon FBA, and it's working fabulously. 
Mm-hmm. Why? Because it fits their supply chain. But the most important thing is to create this balance that you can manage. Uh, within Amazon, you have the IPI index, uh, the Inventory Performance Index score that they started using about a year and a half ago. Um, it's a mess. It's a total mess. The data they are using or saying they're using doesn't add up. They have never disclosed their function, the way this is calculated, its propriety. So, and um, you have to take into account that the score you get in the IPI is a 90-day moving average. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That means that if you fix everything today, it will take you 10 to 60 days for it to show in your score. Right. Now, I have a customer that we're, his IPI started dropping and we started working on um, stopping that. We didn't really want to fix it. We just wanted to stop it from dropping even lower. We made all kinds of tweaks and changes. Nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. Whoops, 125 scores up, uh, points up. We have no idea what. <laughs> So, but if you look at their explanation, what do you need to fix in order for the IPI score to be better? They're talking about inventory flow. Mm -hmm. They're talking about having your inventory in the SBA, in the uh, fulfillment centers, move and, and be in constant replenishment instead of stagnate and build up and age. Right. So right. make sure, but there is one thing in IPI that I like. Make sure your, um, it's called, uh, whoosh, I forgot the name for it. <laughs> they have one parameter about um, listings that cannot sell because they've been abandoned or. Um, right, right. Uh, they have a technical issue. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a technical issue in your listing, it's not going to sell. 100%. So I want that to be at zero at all times. There is no excuse for having anything on that parameter for more than two days. You have to glance at it almost daily. It's zero. Okay, I can move. At zero, I can, oh, something popped up. Fix it. Do not let your listings get abandoned. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That, that's great advice. Great advice. Um, apart from Color Central and uh, the IPI, what tools can Amazon sellers uh, use? Uh, or maybe Excel works perfectly fine for inventory management, inventory balancing. Well, Excel works perfectly fine when you're small and you can do it in, even in your head which I don't recommend. Like, how, how small? Like, what's the threshold after which you have to go upgrade? I would say that once you have more than one unit sold per day, mm-hmm. which is, that's even sm- still quite small, but that's where you start looking. Once you, you have an SKU that starts selling uh, significant amounts, it becomes logical and, and 
probably more than one SKU. If you have just one of those, maybe wait a, a little more. But once you go above that, start thinking about automating this decision-making. It depends on how many SKUs you have. It depends how, how much your margins are. What, but basically, I tell people who work with me, you need to have about 10 SKUs at the minimum, which is very, very small, and about a million in sales when it starts making sense to invest in this. Because inventory balancing is also going to bring you your business up. It's going to increase your business. Right. Now, if you're going to do it manually and in your head, um, there is a system in the just-in-time world that's called the two-card system. Two-card. It basically tells you to double your inventory or... You have to hold about 1.5 times the inventory you really need for the system to work, but it's, a, it's, it's almost a mechanical system that ensures you don't stock out. And it's very easy to manage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, if, if you feel you're not big enough, if you want to go in alone because you don't want to invest money, you don't have the money, you just don't like bringing people in, whatever it is, that's something that I would investigate as a way to ensure you don't stock out. Uh, there's a, a very important point to make here, which is that everybody hates excess inventory. That It hurts them. They see it. They know that it's their money sitting there. But the truth is the, 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 the real money, the big money, is in ensuring you don't stock out. It's okay. about three times as big. And I'm not going to go into the math of it. I wanted to ask you about that a bit later. Uh, when I mean, when things are going great and stuff is selling, right? Uh, but there's always a risk of running out of inventory. Uh, but uh, for now, just imagine that you're an Amazon seller or you're talking to an Amazon seller uh, who's like in a total mess when it comes to inventory. Like he doesn't know what, what's happening because he focused so much on marketing and product listings and on finding the right product, but he doesn't know. Uh, he, he, he's in the old model of supply chain, right? And uh, how do they start on correcting their mistakes? What process do they have to go through to correcting their mistakes and upgrading their inventory management system? Well, you start with mapping because you have to figure out where you are um, and where you want to go. And once you have a clear grasp of the situation, you have to figure out if um, you need to do a pilot and try out some kind of system. And here's the thing. If you have a complex supply chain, Always start with a pilot. If you jump off the high, the deep end of the pool and say, okay, I realize I have a problem. Let's fix everything at once. It's going to mess you up. I've tried it. It doesn't work. You have to start small in order to figure out how to make the adjustment between the logic, which fits everybody, to the solution, which should fit you and your needs and your preferences. So you start small. 
And how to do that is, again, very, very... Um, Depends on a case-by-case basis, right? A very case-by-case basis. Um, if you have only Amazon store and only one supplier, but several families of SKUs, you start with one family. If you sell on omni-channel, you, you don't start with all of the channels together. So you can go by channel and by product family, etc. You figure out what it is that you can take a buy a chunk of the business and try it out where you will actually see results there. So you can compare. There's two reasons to do the pilot. In addition to the fact that you're just going to drown if you try to do everything at once. Uh, one is that you have a fallback plan. Say you did the pilot and you tried something and it didn't work. Now, the rest of your business is still running the way you always did. And, and, and as we said in the beginning, it works. It's right. not optimal, but you know it works so you can fall back to it. And the other thing is you need to know if this new thing actually really created a benefit. It's not just a shiny object. Okay, you put your data in, it gave you results, that the recommendations, and you did stuff, and you feel really, really good. But you have to go back down to your bottom line. Did this make more money? Did this make more profit? I don't care about the metrics in the middle, the matrices in the middle. I don't care that you have more order. Um, things look better. You have nice graphs. I don't care if your cost per unit is down, your PPC is up. Like Jerry Maguire in the movie Jerry Maguire, show me the money. I want to see more profit and more free cash in your cash flow. If you don't get that, it's not worth the time. It's all unnecessary. Exactly. Exactly. Is that, is that something uh, you see when and do when you're talking to uh, existing sellers? Is that some of the first things that uh, people can start improving in their inventory management? Is, is that how you work with sellers by mapping out? This is basically my process. We do a mapping. We figure out if they have excess inventory. Inventory balance doesn't know how to um, flush out excess. If you start doing the balance right away, the, the excess will flush itself out over time, yes. But when you start with a big amount of excess, we can do things to flush the, that out much faster and much more profitably. So we start by doing this mapping to understand what's your position right now. Mm -hmm. Where's the and bottleneck? I come from the world of bottlenecks, but we don't talk about them in inventory management a lot. Um, I look at it as a lot like medical triage okay. if you come to an accident scene and somebody's not breathing and he's bleeding when i taught was taught first aid they told me you take care of the wound first and i said why he's not breathing he says well you can pump him hard as hard as you want and you pump all the blood out of him first make <laughs> right. sure he has some blood in the system to make the resuscitation uh effective so the first thing we do is do this mapping. We figure out where are you bleeding? What's mm -hmm. your situation? We do this triage. If a company comes to me and it's in crash 
cash flow critical state. We're not going to go and take care of the missing SKUs right now. Yes, there is a lot of money in those three, four, five SKUs that are in stock out. There's a ton of money, and the fact that they're in stock out is going to uh, affect the way the algorithm is uh, working with them, but all of that doesn't matter if that company is going down tomorrow. First of all, let's squeeze the money out of the inventory so that they can breathe. Now let's talk. So we first do this triage and we start focusing where the most important facts are, where the most important problems are, whether it's cash, whether it's long-term survival of the business compared within the Amazon algorithm, whether their IPI is hoovering on the 400 points and it's those critical weeks of the month, we go where the bleeding is and we start there. And we might say, okay, we'll keep doing what we're doing right now for everything except this point of the business because before we fix this, nothing happens. And we move from there. So let's say you, uh, a client comes to me and they have a ton of excess inventory throughout the business. We don't buy anything new. We do not mm -hmm. buy. And if they have stock out, we might have to live with that for a while because they can't reach their minimum order quantity on three SKUs. And when they have 50 that are piled up to the sky and, and incurring tons of fees on Amazon for excess inventory. But we will call the supplier and we'll tell him, Mr. Supplier, this is the situation. This is what we're planning to do. This is where you can help us. This is why we think you should. What can be done? And we're not going to leave him in the dark. You have a supplier that's relatively used to having you contact him twice, three times a year for ordering. You've done your mapping and you realize I have a customer that we just mapped now. Um, they have about a year's inventory on everything. A year and up. On just about everything. They have to contact their supplier and say, listen, we are overstocked on everything. We're going to do what we can to make it fat, move faster, but it'll take about six to eight months before we're going to think of a new order. Don't be alarmed. We're coming back just as soon as we can right. get this going. Because I like this approach. I like, I like this approach of um, not keeping your supplier in the dark and basically like working as partners together. Because I, I think that a lot of sellers just, yeah, as you said, they contact their supplier like twice a year and uh, because when they need to order new inventory. But like going together is actually beneficial for the both parties. Listen, you are part of the same supply chain. Um, right. Financially, when you buy from your supplier, his books show a sale. But right. logically, nobody sells until it's on the shelf at the home or the office where it's going to be used. Nobody had a sale. It's just money moving from one pocket to the other within the supply chain. And oh, we yeah. forget to see this because we're different companies. 
I like that. I like that. Uh, could you talk briefly about the alternatives to keeping an inventory? Because all this time we talked about uh, the general approach when you stock up inventory, but there are companies out there that do drop shipping that don't uh, take the risk of storing an inventory. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, drop shipping is not a new term. It's been around for many, many years, I think. Much before, even much before the internet, but it has changed dramatically over the last 10 or 20 years with the event of internet and um, all this Alibaba and AliExpress and uh, the different, the big arbitrage uh, gaps. And people feel gaps in the, in, in the world and the ability to come in and do this kind of arbitrage uh, has created a new form of drop shipping because in the past when you wanted to do drop shipping you actually had to tell your supplier hey mr supplier you are my supplier and this is the terms i want to work with you and the supplier had to say yes mm -hmm. right now drop shipping has become a sluice operation i'm not going to tell you that you're buying from me and uh, and it's not really from me it's from somebody in china and I'm not going to tell him that I'm not the buyer, it's you. And, 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 and it's really a lose-lose situation. Mm -hmm. And the people who are doing it say, oh, no, but I'm making money. You're taking on a huge risk at the same time. Now, for a seller, inventory is the heart of your business. That's what you do. You take products and you sell them. You don't produce anything. There is no value added except for the fact that you knew how to put it all together nicely on a website and create some kind of value about finding it with you. So inventory is the heart of your business. I wouldn't outsource my heart. Uh, it can be done. My, my father has a heart condition. He had to outsource his heart because uh, his defibrillator wasn't working, his uh, pacemaker wasn't working. It was done in hospitalization, in the hospital with a special vest that keeps his heart working, but he did not go home. He was under supervision the whole time, lest something goes wrong. That's the same thing here. You've taken the, the heart of your business and you've given it to some Chinese guy you don't even know mm -hmm. to take care of. Sometimes people do it they haven't even ordered one unit to test themselves. They don't know if it's crap or not. I like that. I, I like that. I'm all for reducing your risk, and I understand the risk of stocking up on inventory. But I think the way um, drop shipping is working today, they've thrown the baby with the bathwater. I would only do drop shipping today as a market test when you're starting out. You want to see, is this really going to work for me? Can I find the first three, four, five products that can work profitably? Then, yeah, maybe very, very carefully. But as soon as you have a business, stop. Control the heart. Interesting, because a lot of sellers actually view dropshipping as a way to reduce risk 
And you're talking about it in a way that it actually has a lot of risk because you're giving out your heart, basically outsourcing the core of your business. And uh, yeah. yeah, I definitely agree that dropshipping is a great way to test the market, right? To do the A-B split test and to understand the demand. Uh, but back to the traditional model, right? Uh, something that we talked a few minutes earlier, uh, when things are going great and your stuff is selling, PPC is working, it's a hot season, but there's always this risk, right, of running out of inventory. Uh, what advice do you have to people who don't want to stop sales, so they want to keep the ball rolling, but they really have a risk of running out of inventory soon? Do they raise prices to turn off PPC, order more? You can do all of that, but um, here's the thing. Your best sellers, they're purple unicorn tears. You can do all of that and they will still sell very well sometimes. Um, So we always have to look into the future when selling, unless we're doing this kind of drop shipping stuff. What you really want to do is have the business process, which ensures you do not run out of it. That's why I said in the beginning that we want to do small and fast business decisions. If I build my processes to have small and fast business decisions, then I come at the beginning, at the end of week one of hot season. Sales are starting to get the velocity that I was expecting. And then I look at them and I no, 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 they're not getting the velocity I was expecting. They're faster. I can make a decision. I want more inventory. I have enough time to do that. And I was just realized that we talk a lot about forecasting when we talk about inventory. Whenever I talk to somebody who has been in business for a longer period of time, they're not just starting out. And I tell them I do inventory balancing. Say, oh, you do forecasting. And I've come to the uh, realization very, very recently that I don't want to call it forecasting anymore. Yeah, I'm going to help you look into the future, but it's planning. Mm -hmm. And the difference between forecasting and planning is this. Even though theoretically we know both of them are wrong, when we say we have a forecast, we're going to work to it because it's factual. And when we say we have a plan, we're going to buffer and we're going to, when we're going to track. Because intuitively, a plan is something that can change. This is totally uh, my psychological ideas. No, I agree. I, I agree. I agree. But I, agree. I, I, see, I see it working. And then when you are planning your sales into the future, be aggressive at the beginning of the season when things are ramping up. And then after, when you expect things to start cooling down, start being very conservative. As you have this ability to, to, to always correct the course. Think about it. We don't get into the car and say, okay, I want to go to Las Vegas. It's that way. We turn the steering wheel that way, put the, the leg on the brake, on the gas, and that's it. Our hands are on the steering wheel and constantly fix it. Our legs are constantly giving more or less gas, more or less brakes. We're always adjusting. Same thing with inventory. We need a model that allows us to adjust. But first of all, I want to start with with more that I need, not a ton more that I need, 
but more than I need. Now, why? Because if things go up faster, I want to, I want to, I want to get uh, get in on the action as soon as possible. I don't want to stop PPC. I don't want to uh, pull back. Yeah, I might put up the price. I can get more profit out of it. And yeah, I've had a customer where I told him, okay, just push the prices up. And they bought. They didn't stop buying. Yeah, that's something I hear a lot that, uh, for example, in December, uh, you can put your prices like 10x and people will still continue buying. But you, if you don't do that, you'll leave so much money on the table, right? December is... Um is a lose-lose anomaly for, from my point of view. Do you know the story of Black Friday? The original story. The, the, the claim is, and, and I've never found a, a, a source that I can trust, the claim is that it's called Black Friday because that's the first time the department stores showed profit in their, profit, in their monthly profit and loss analysis. So they were in the red from January all the way through to mid-November. Oh, wow. I didn't know that, actually. Then they had this big sale. That's what Wikipedia says, and it says it's not official. It's not the official story. That's what is believed. But you have these huge department stores, chains of stores, that are operating at a loss for 10 out of 12 months in the year. And then they would have this big sale because they have too much inventory. Mm, mm -hmm. And it started by with one store or uh, department store or chain of stores. And then they had success. So, so their competitor, competitors copied it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now we have the like month and a half of mid-November through to Christmas. We, and, and here in Israel, it starts at the beginning of uh, November with Shopping IL, which is a local uh, event just for local stores run by Google. Mm -hmm. And then you go to 11.11, the Bachelor's Day in China, where all the world has sales. Why? Because somebody says it's a sale day. And then you go to Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And next year, somebody will come up with uh, Purple Tuesday. I don't know what. And we are teaching the market to behave in certain ways. Exactly. Which are counterproductive to us and to the market and to our clients. Basically, what happens is the entire year, everything costs too much because we're trying to get a profit. And eventually then we get to Black Friday, we reduce it significantly. We do a big, big, big chunk of revenue, but at what profit? A lot of companies are playing with loss on that. Yeah, they need the cash. I see this more in brick and mortar retail here in the stores where they go into end of season sale about three days after they start the season. And by the real end of the season where worse games worse and you have to get rid of this or you're going to throw it in the, the garbage, they go to 80% discounts. 
Right. And, and the problem is uh, the companies cannot bail out out of Black Friday because, and Cyber Monday because the customers are waiting for these days, right? They know, they're trained throughout the whole year that the prices are up. But two or three times per, uh, per year, uh, the prices are going to go so low that they can go and just binge buy everything, right? Uh, some companies don't do Black, uh, Black Friday. I think I've heard Patagonia or Columbia, one of those... But they do really any sales, to be honest, like Patagonia. Okay. First of all, once we've trained everybody to be in a certain way, we can't just get up one morning and say, not going to happen anymore. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, yeah. So you do your own set. First of all, take them off the schedule. But you have to notice something else. Even with the Black Friday events and everything, most of the time, good sellers... Strike that. Best sellers sell full price. Mm -hmm. With all the sales, with all the trainings, we all still know if it's purple, unicorn, tears, it's not going to be there. It's going to sell. So you better buy now. I love that. I love that. Uh, to be honest, I think this is a great way to wrap up our conversation. But until we do so, I have a last question uh, that we came up with at Seller Scale. It's actually a question by Peter Thiel, uh, the author of The Billionaire Investor and the author of Zero to One, one of the founders of PayPal, uh, which we adapted to the Amazon space. And I wanted to ask you that. Uh, what is your contrarian view that goes against commonly accepted notions in the industry. And we talked a lot about different parts of your potential answer to this question, but still, um, I want to hear you talk about it once more. Okay, so this is something we did not go deep into, but we did mention, and that is the cost per unit. Okay. There is a story from the time the U.S., uh, defense ministry was uh, investing deeply uh, in building new technologies where the um, buyers of the uh, technological companies knew they're going to be judged by cost per unit. And so this buyer had a project they wanted to win and he needed 50 units of some thingamajig. And those 50 units cost, let's say, $2 each. So that's $100. And he went to his uh, supplier, and the supplier said, if you buy 1000 it'll cost you um, $200. If you divide that, you get a much, much lower price per unit. But you are spending I don't remember my own numbers, sorry. <laughs> like 100 or $150 that you don't need to spend in real dollars. Mm -hmm. Now, the buyer said, sure, no problem. I'll buy the, the thousand. There'll be other projects. We'll get rid of it. And anyway, three years from now, I won't be, when this project ends, I'll be at a different job. Nobody will remember to get my ass for it. Sorry for the language. Uh, so that's what they did. They got a very good unit price, although they spent more money than they needed to spend. Uh, only problem is, and they did it, of course, on a lot of other items, um, their contract was cut because of cost cuttings in the defense department. 
and they went out of business because they had spent so much money that they didn't spend. <coughs> and there wasn't another project that could pick it up. Mm. When we do our calculations based on unit cost, when we don't know how much we're going to sell, we are using a wrong parameter. We're using the wrong metric. We need, we only, let, let me try and rephrase this here. What counts is only what we sell because the rest of the units, that's money down the drain and you have to take the entire cost of what you bought, the cost for shipment, the cost for all your inventory and divide it across the units that you actually sold. So it's a cost of unit sold, not cost of unit bought. Right, that right. Defines your profitability. Now, your accountant or your bookkeeper isn't going to tell you that because from a financial point of view, from the uh, way the IFRS, the regulated way you do your books, inventory that you didn't sell yet is an asset. It's equivalent to money. Even though we all know that if you didn't sell it for a long enough time, it's equivalent to trash. It's a liability. It's a liability, but in the books, it's an asset. And when you do your profit and loss, you only account as big businesses. In small businesses, there may be a little leeway there, but you only account for the inventory you sold. So it's cost of goods sold. I like that. I've actually done an, an assessment of uh, traded companies across the world. And I found out that um, somewhere around 74% have more money in their inventory than in their profit line. Mm. And, I, and I only looked at profitable companies in this case. So you make an annual profit of a million, but you've got uh, a million point three in inventory. Interesting. Money tied up in inventory. Basically, uh, it says that you are eroding your cash flow, even if you have enough cash. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And I think that's what gets a lot of e-commerce businesses out there, right? And uh, something that we talked about early on that people tend to postpone inventory management, inventory balancing, and they forget about it and they think it's not really important. But I mean, what you talked about today, I think is really important. And I think there's a lot of valuable stuff that Amazon sellers can take away, even if it's only one or two things. So thank you. Thank you very much, Orion, for being here today. And thank you, everybody, for listening or watching this, depending on the platform you're using to consume this content. Don't forget to subscribe on the YouTube channel and leave a review or follow us on podcast platform. And until next time. You were listening to the Seller Scale podcast. Join us for a free trial at sellerscale.com.